0: Welcome to the next episode of American Filmmaker. On this episode, we're going to talk to Chelsea Hernandez about her journey to make her first documentary feature film titled Building the American Dream. Building the American Dream had its world premiere at the 2019 South by Southwest Film Festival and is currently on the film festival circuit. It has a national PBS air date, which has not been scheduled yet. So we hope that you'll be able to watch this film on PBS, or at a film festival near you. Please welcome Chelsea Hernandez.
1: Hello, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. I'm always curious where and how people grow up and when they noticed that they might be creative.
1: Well, I grew up in Texas. was born in San Antonio. Uh, We moved to Austin when I was a baby, and I was raised here my whole life. And it was when I was about eight years old, my mom had a community access television show. So the access station here at the time was really accessible, as it should be, to the community. Um, So it was a small price to become a member and have free access to equipment and editing rooms and studios. And so my mom, who had always kind of dabbled in the arts, She used to act when she was younger, wanted to learn about camera work and editing and learn about television so she became a member there started her own show which was like a craft show kind of like Martha Stewart and she would film it in our living room or she would film with friends who were into the craft scene and I just kind of watched her and learned from her and then told her well I want my own show and so she said okay let's do it and so we started kids ideas when I was about eight years old, and it was a, a craft show for kids, we traveled to small Texas towns to give kids ideas what to do in their spare time, then did crafts and cooking, and we filmed that in our living room. My neighbor across the street sometimes was a guest. My sister was on the show. Uh, my dad ran camera sometimes, me and my mom directed and produced, and she edited, and I would sit in the edit room with her, so it was a total family affair, and I did that for about eight years of my childhood, from eight to 17 years old, and it actually, like, had gotten some attention um, the few years we were on the access station and was picked up by the NBC and WV affiliates in Austin. So we got to go to D.C. and film and travel a little bit more outside of, of Austin. So that was my world into media making, and I guess it never stopped from there. I think I look back at it now, and I realize how helpful it was to have that because to me it was normal to like have a job or have a career in television because I had kind of grown up with it so young. So when I finished high school and decided to seek a career in media, specifically television and filmmaking, it was kind of normal for my family to accept that. So so yeah, I, and that was also too where I learned how to edit, and that's kind of my trade now. I got to watch my mom edit tape to tape with the knobs and the cooking and and now i kind of appreciate the beginnings of of editing and just you know bringing a whole story together from hours of footage is a is a process and it's something that i really enjoy
0: i feel like when we're growing up i don't know if we're always encouraged to follow all the creativity and so in a way right. this was full-on creativity from from the age of eight.
1: Yeah, I mean, my weekends were usually spent filming episodes, and during the week, you know, after I did my homework, my mother and I would plan shows together or kind of do some research, find ideas. So it was definitely a large part of my life. And, yeah, so, like, where I'm at now is, like, not surprising to my family where I see you know, other people. I think there are students I went to college with who maybe were seeking out a career in that and are no longer in that and I think it was just really helpful to have my family like be supportive and understand that I wanted to go into into media and that and that it was
0: okay. I think it really proves that you gotta be in it for the love of the game. Or like what I like to say is story over glory. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> definitely. Because <laughs> it's not easy, that's for sure. So we're definitely just making making media for for definitely the story, you know?
0: Coming from that, making the high school-college transition, so for any young people listening, you know, thinking about studying media or for all the eight-year-olds, what was that transition like, and then how did you choose what college to go to?
1: Yeah, it was a, a lengthy process. College usually takes about four years, and it took me eight years. So I first went to community college in Austin because I really wasn't sure what school I wanted to attend, and I was able to get enough scholarships to pay for my first couple years. Um, here and it was all the basic stuff so I was like I'll just get all that stuff out of the way because I was sort of on the the edge of like do I want to go into broadcast journalism because I thought maybe I'll be a news anchor or do I want to go into film and I'm so glad I chose film (laughs) but it was in that two years of going to community college where I discovered like yeah, I, I need to go into film and I want to go into documentaries because what I liked about broadcast journalism was this kind of discovering of stories, interviewing people, asking questions, with curiosity, but I wasn't so much into like the, the television news part aspect of it and, and the kind of very traditional journalistic storytelling. I wasn't really into that, so I thought, well, I'm going to go to New York City. So I got accepted to Adelphi University on Long Island and just went. I didn't know anybody out there. And for people who don't know where Adelphi is, it's on Long Island. It's about a 15-minute train ride from Manhattan. It's the suburbs. You know, people still need a car out there. I didn't have a car. But I just did it. And studying film out there, I tried to immerse myself in the independent film community and found this documentary and production house called DCTV. And they have open houses. And I, I went, met some people and really liked the vibe. And TV's a dock house and a fire station <laughs> in Chinatown in New York. The person who owns it is John Albert. He's an avid documentary filmmaker. At the time, Democracy Now, the TV show, was filming there, and yeah, it was just like a really cool vibe, and it was exactly what I needed. And I was like, this is, this is like, this, this is a community I want to be involved in, and, and I can learn a lot from these people as well. And so I interned for them in the rentals equipment room and ended up getting hired part-time and was able to learn all about equipment. I mean, I knew a lot about equipment, but technology was changing. And then they also had like edit stations so I could take classes and it was awesome. And so then I was like, well, I don't need to go to school <laughs> like I'm here doing what I want to do so I ended up dropping out of school for a little bit and just ended up working networking and freelancing and was able to live in New York City for a little bit and then I was like missing school so I enrolled in Brooklyn College and went there for a semester and that was really great I had never taken a screenwriting class and I was able to take one by this woman who's like a script doctor for Paramount Studios and got to make my first Super 8 film, which we filmed on the subway and all through Brooklyn. And that was really exciting. And then my mom actually got sick. So I decided to go back to Austin and help my family out. And that was really tough because I was just getting immersed in New York. I had just a year of living there, and, you know, the whole thinking of, like, once you've lived a year in New York, you've made it, you know, so I was kind of on, like, a high note, and then I had to come back to Austin, so I felt like I was setting myself back, but it actually was a, a total, like, blessing in disguise. I took off for a little bit to help my family, and then I decided to enroll at the University of Texas. And it's really hard to get in as a transfer student into the radio, television, and film department, but I had already all this experience in New York, so I had to, like, talk to the dean and, you know, just sort of brag about myself on paper, which I felt weird about doing, but I was like, I want to get into this program, and uh, luckily I got accepted, and I went to UT for a couple years, and that was what was great about taking so long at getting to this stage of the final school that I was going to graduate from was that I figured out through those years, like what I really, really wanted to do. So when I went to UT, I was like, I'm taking all the documentary courses. I'm taking the editing courses. Like I I tried not to just mess with classes that I knew I didn't need. So I took some documentary courses by director Ellen Spiro and she saw that I had some experience and that I was good and eventually she hired me on a national PBS broadcast special right before I graduated from UT in twenty ten and she hired me on as like an associate producer and assistant editor and I was like, Well, I've I've never worked for PBS, I don't know anything and she was like, You'll learn it, you're smart, you know, you know how to do things like I trust you and, like, have full confidence. And and that was what I really needed in order to move forward in my career because that was that whole experience working on that show was like college all over again. <laughs> but even a little better, you know. So after graduating college, I, I went off to work on that for almost a year. And then um, I was able to work with director Hector Galan on a pbs series and based on my experience that i had with the pbs show before it was like perfect and i could now use the skills that i learned in a more cohesive way that flowed really well eventually that led to my full-time job at the pbs station in austin where i worked as an editor and co-producer for an arts documentary series called arts in context
0: So what was the uh, series name that you worked on right after graduating? Because I'm curious if uh, all of the listeners can now go check out some of these clips online as you're listening.
1: (laughs) I mean, yeah, I don't know if it's still online. It was like uh, almost 10 years ago, I guess, but that was called Fixing the Future. It was like a special that was hosted by David Brancaccio, who is a host of NPR's Marketplace we did a a pbs special and then we also did um a feature film that played at the less theaters around the country
0: like that's just a wonderful experience
1: yeah it was so great i mean been so lucky to work with really kind people in all of these projects and that one in particular like everyone around me was really great and helping me learn too and sort of showing me the ropes and that was really helpful since i didn't really know much about PBS. I mean, like PBS, there's a whole like technical book called the Red Book that you have to abide by. You know, like, so learning all those things I needed to have, like mentors and everybody around me were, were pretty much like
0: mentors. Just for anybody who is in film school or is out of film school, I was curious, what is the general vibe of Austin? And I mean, it is a powerful, powerful film school. And just for, you know, I didn't get to go there and so but i've definitely met a lot of filmmakers from there i really like all humans that graduate from the austin film school program i mean a really nice group of filmmakers always on the film festival circuit the
1: the undergrad program is a little different from the mfa program but i was also like the oldest person in my classes in the undergrad program so i ended up hanging out with some grad students and and got to see what they were doing i just I do feel like every a lot of the students are very driven. I feel like UT allowed us to like experiment, allowed us to sort of like find our voice. You know, in film school, there always you're always taught to like learn the rules first before you break them. And I mean, I was also there like the last two years of, of my program. So, I wasn't there in the beginning two years, and maybe it's a little different, because <laughs> I feel like the last two years, maybe people already know, like, what they want to do and their style and stuff. So, maybe I have a little bit of different perspective than others, but I do feel like people got to make what they wanted to make. They got to experiment and play with form, which I thought was really cool. I also had taken an advanced narrative class with Kat Candler, who's the uh, showrunner for *Clean Sugar, um, who's directed some episodes there, 13 Reasons Why, like, she's done so much stuff, and um, that class was, like, phenomenal, like, she, not only did we have to, like, work on other people's films, and and make the film, you know, finish it, complete it, but then afterwards, like, we had to figure out where we were going to put the film, so we had to research film festivals that you know, maybe our niche that our film could be a good addition to, um, figure out how much it costs, like, you know, figure out the budget for doing distribution. What are those distribution outlets besides film festivals? So it was really cool to be able to see that, like, oh, we've finished a film, but that's not the end of it, you know? Like, now let's bring it to audiences and, and how do we do that? And I think as a young student, like, to understand that early allows you to see how to sustain a career as a filmmaker, you know, knowing that whole path for a film. And same with, like, I took an editing class by Kyle Henry, and, you know, the last couple weeks of our class, we were also talking about what it is like to be an editor in Hollywood, in indie film, um, as a freelancer, you know. Getting that sort of real-world advice was really helpful.
0: And then also just setting a wonderful base for the Austin film community. So then transitioning into Austin PBS, you know, there are a lot of filmmaking communities around the United States. And I feel like Mm -hmm. it's good to know what the flavor and the feel is. You know, the creators of all kinds can actually choose where they want to live. I feel like maybe 50 to 75 years ago, you know, you still had to be in these epicenters. Whereas now media right. is kind of all pervasive and kind of reaches everywhere. So mm-hmm. so the stories can kind of come from a lot of different places. So I guess what's Austin like?
1: Yeah. For yeah, I have friends in New York who are thinking of moving to Austin. Austin is still a small community. You know, the the filmmaking community is still small. You everybody sort of knows everybody Uh, but we're all very, I think it's a very open community. I know the news always, media always talks about, you know, often being the third coast, and, you know, I think it is in some ways. I think the biggest difference is, you know, there's still a lot of money in New York and L.A., you know, so so freelancing here I think can be a little difficult because there's not those big bucks here. You know, there's not big investment firms and stuff like, with my feature film most of my money you know came from outside of Austin came from outside of Texas you know so you have to sort of understand that your the the resources are probably going to come from outside of Austin but the people are there's really great people here people are really creative people are really collaborative and people you know talk talk to one another and and it's great because then people recommend you for stuff, you know, which is helpful, especially if you're freelancing. We have some really talented filmmakers here. I mean, P.J. Raval, you know, has made a lot of documentaries here, Keith Maitland, and, yeah, I, and, and having that, like, really strong talent here is is pretty cool. Annie Silverstein just, like, had her film, Bull, premiere at Cannes, and and I think she's based here. She went to the MFA program at UT, and they filmed in Houston. And her and her producer, um, but I believe they're based here in Austin. So, so there's definitely some good talent here, and I think it's I think it's only gonna get better.
0: Just comparatively to give people kind of a you know creative analysis of all the different cities in the U.S. You know, if I were to say you know, do a comparison similar to Denver, which is the closest city that I'm, I'm living to, I would say, yeah, it's, it definitely does not have as much creativity as Austin. There's not a lot of film stuff. There is an independent scene. A lot of majors come in to like shoot scenes here. And there's kind of a documentary thread that you can see happening. Like, uh, films like Icarus, that guy was, like, a Boulder-based filmmaker, and now okay. I think he's probably, um, you know, bouncing back and forth between L.A. and Boulder. So Boulder ends up being more of, like, a destination location. So, like, a lot of creatives okay. might, like, come through Boulder, but then, you know, there's a couple agencies here, but again, freelance is, is hard, you know and so to okay. to get the bigger clients you know they're basically coming from New York and LA but also you know I'm trying to develop a bigger idea and I'm calling my friend who lives in New York because he can okay. think he just has the bandwidth to kind of think about that kind of thing you know but you know finding the right people and so interestingly enough I've been trying to you know foster and help build a Colorado creative community and like there are you know directors from out here you know, Daniel Young, he's done some HBO stuff. And then there's some older old schoolers. But I mean, there's just kind of a smaller scene. And it's not even like Chicago. And it's definitely not like Austin. So, okay. so move okay. there, guys. Don't don't move to Colorado. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't move here. No, just... Don't I move mean, to Austin either.
1: Me... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, a, a lot of people are moving here. And gentrification is happening in a lot of these big cities and and often we're feeling it a lot especially in the artist community because you know it's it's starting to get more expensive you know food prices and rent is like going up um and so artists are being pushed out of the, the neighborhoods where we used to live in so but in comparison to like chicago new york or la like it's still really cheap you know and and so i think that is one of the great benefits Like, I've I've thought about leaving Austin, like, so many times because I have a good network in other places, but then I just think about the rent in other places, and I'm like, well, if I could just, like, live here, you know, like, just be my office base, you know, in Austin, then I can seek work in other places or or get grants from other places in order to, like, live here. Because it is... It is a comfortable place, you know, like you were talking about the, the grind in New York City and and I I've, I've thought about moving back, but it's, that grind is, is really like, it's hard on your your mental capacity, you know, and I like driving a car so and getting around pretty easily. So I think then, oh, well, like maybe I will just stay in Austin. It is pretty comfortable, laid back. People are really chill here, really friendly. And and so that kind of it's you know kind of outweighs the struggles with with freelancing or you know sustaining that career.
0: Somehow I feel like now being a a media creator, um, a writer, a director, a producer, it really opens up this this lifestyle for remote work or travel-based production work. That then you're either doing the post work on. Or, you know, doing all of the pre-production work on to do all of the development. And so I do think mm-hmm. it, it can open up something to where if the creative force lives in a place that they love, then that's the best thing for the creative force, you know. And and then all of the stuff around it becomes project-based. I mean, at least that's what I'm trying to pursue. Because just in a similar fashion, you know, New York, you kind of learn all the lessons And then you go, well, what do I need to be healthy? And, like, I discovered I Mm -hmm. really love Tai Chi. And so now I can't leave Colorado until my Tai Chi teacher doesn't exist. And so I'm just Mm -hmm. trying to become, like, a superhuman Tai Chi panda. And then while at the same time as being that, you know, then I'm just trying to create at scale but also do it in a way that kind of outworks everybody living in New York and L.A. Because I do think – regardless of what we want to believe, there are glass ceilings everywhere. And so glass mm-hmm. glass ceilings for work in the sense of like, yeah, you're good, but then we won't give you that job. We would rather remake your film. you know Or like, you know, there's just these different, I think, things. And like, I've heard too many stories of like people trying to, you know, keep up with the Jones and not keep up with their own creativity. and mm-hmm. And I think for me, that's kind of, you know, what I'm doing. Because I can kind of out, you know, I think it's a marathon, kind of like Nipsey Hussle said. And so I just kind of try to keep the creative output going. And then also, you know, I think every filmmaker might be tasked with a different burden, you know, or like they might task themselves with a different need. Whether it's I have to tell stories from this place in the world or... For me yeah. right now, I'm just trying to figure out the documentary distribution and then other things like that. And then monetizing in a way that makes it sustainable for filmmakers, you know, because then we can live wherever we want, Chelsea. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> I, I get mean, excited about yeah. that. Yeah, and, and I'm like, you know, I, I want to make sure that my mental health is, you know, is OK and has space to, to be creative, you know, to continue to be creative, so we have the Colorado River that runs, like, right in the middle of town, and they have a really nice hike and bike trail that I can walk to from my house, like, my neighbors are super awesome, like, just, and, and having that little bit of nature just, uh, you know, half a mile away is, like, super helpful for me to, you know, just, you know, release and, and continue to be creative. And then what's so great about, you know, technology now is is we can work with people in different cities. I worked with two editors. One was based in L.A., one was based in San Francisco. My sound mixer and composer was based in New York. I have an impact producer for our impact campaign. She's based in Miami, and it's it's been fantastic, you know. That's really cool, too, because then I can, like, go and visit those places, you know, if I yeah. need to, you know, like now I have an excuse to like go and, and maybe do some work over there. if if I need to, and then same with them, like, you know, a, a lot of people want to come and visit Austin and hang out here. So that gives them an excuse too, to like come and work in Austin for a little bit.
0: How did working at PBS um, lead to the feature film? I know there were a couple of short films made in between the feature. Or like, were there? Did you make any short films? I saw one that I was watching about the two pregnant women.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: One was a citizen, and one was illegal. So through the pregnancy, you know, she had mm-hmm. other other issues. Was that something you made before?
1: I made that after I left the PBS station. I was making little shorts before and during. My time at KLRU here in Austin, I made one with my boyfriend, Eric Malk. We co-directed a short documentary called See the Dirt, which is on Vimeo if anyone wants to see it, about a teenager who collects vacuum cleaners. And it was our last film we filmed on SD on the Panasonic DVX-100, which I love that camera so much. Uh, Nice,
0: nice. Long live DVX. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I love that camera, man. That was, like, my first camera I bought, too, like, major camera I bought, but it was, like, at the time where, like, things were already starting to move to HDV and then to HD, and we hadn't, like, made that transition yet, because there was still stuff being filmed in SD, and we were just like, oh, we don't want to let go of this camera, but we knew, like, we had to move to HD. And we had thought about that when we were making the film, we were like, "Ah, should we film in HD or should we film with a DVX? And so we we ended up filming with a DVX because we had the cameras and it was accessible. But also I think it was a good choice because – I mean, this kid has, like, over 200 vacuums, some are really old, and um, it just brought a kind of cool graininess to the film that was a little vintage-like and kind of quirky. It's a quirky story, and yeah, that film did really well. Like, we won some awards, it went to the Edinburgh Film Festival in Scotland, went to a lot of places in the U.S., and uh, so yeah, that's on, that's on Demeo, you can just, search for see the dirt if you want to watch the whole thing i'll um, put the link
0: in the bio so for anyone listening on the apple itunes or the spotify it'll yeah. have a link i think one of them will have it
1: cool so i done that while i was at pbs i mean working on pbs like that was my first gig as like the editor like the primary editor and i had always done producing stuff so it just felt natural to also produce while I was editing um, I had always been an assistant editor, but I felt like I had been doing that for about three years, and so now it's time to, like, jump into that edit role, and, and again, I had, like, an amazing director, Mario Chancoso, who, you know, invited me into this space and gave me an opportunity to, to learn, so the first year was was really tough, so art in Context they no longer have the TV show portion of it, but when I was there my first year, we had to cut 12 half-hour episodes, one a month, and then we also had a a couple one-hour specials. So I also edited two one-hour specials, and it was the first time I ever got the flu. <laughs> I got bronchitis. <laughs> I got strep
0: throat.
1: Oh, wow. <laughs> it was the sickest I've ever been in my whole life <laughs>
0: that's a lot of but,
1: content um, yeah it's it's a lot of it's a lot of footage it's a lot of work for like one year um, and and many times like the show wasn't even fully filmed like I, I was getting like final footage like days before like the episode was supposed to be picture locked so it was it was pretty stressful we were a super small team it was only me full time Mario was full time and then we had contractors that we worked with. I had a really awesome assistant editor who was an intern with us, and then she became a contractor too, and I still use her today. So it was a lot of work, but I'm glad that that happened because it pushed me to to know the formula, sort of, of cutting a story. So I learned, you know, how to cut emotions, how to cut an art really quickly. I learned not to, like get so connected to my footage, um, where, like, then I'm just dwelling over it and I can't let like, go of it, you know, because in television, you have to, like, keep going, so if, if the shot's not good or it's not doing anything, like, throw it out, and, and that was hard for me at the beginning, because I was like, ah, oh, but maybe we can use this, I was like, no, we gotta go, <laughs> um, so, <laughs> that's, but that's yeah, awesome. and, and, yeah, I mean, and, and then it also, like, just made me understand just all the elements of the documentary. You know, how many interviews we need to tell a story, how many scenes we need. And I know that may sound, like, really formulaic and not exciting, but...
0: No, um, no, no, that's real. Like, that, this is, like, yeah. I, actually what I made the podcast for because my follow-up question, which I don't want to interrupt, I, I literally want you to go back to exactly what you were saying, but um, what was the strategy?
1: Well, I mean, thankfully, like... I was working for a director who knew exactly, you know, what he wanted. So he wasted no time in interviews like asking a bajillion questions, recording for an hour. You know, like he had the questions and the story already sort of just the heart of the story you know we never exactly knew the full structure but we knew so arts in context follows artists it usually follows some sort of personal story of theirs and we understand like why they do art or why are they doing a certain performance and so he he always knew like the backstory of this artist their their purpose where they're from like the, the meaning behind um, the piece of work that we're filming. So I could always get a gist of what the episode might be. And so he was very direct with his questions when he interviewed subjects. So we only had like 15 to 20 minute interviews, which is fantastic because then it's like, okay, this is all I need. You know, um, yeah, yeah. I don't have to waste time listening to a whole hour interview, because in the end, the 30-minute episode is probably only going to have like 10 minutes talking, 10 to 15 minutes talking, you know? And then he knew the scenes that were going to be filmed, so as those scenes would come in, me and the assistant editor would, you know, pull, select, and make really short sequences of the select, you know, like 5 to 10 minutes, and then I would chop it down and just like build a scene. I really like postcards, so I would kind of throw out postcards of the scenes, and, and that would help me create an arc of, like, where we were going with this person. And there was always, like, a backstory with the artist, so we knew there needed to be archived footage, so myself and the assistant editor, too, would do some research while um, production is still happening and try to find old videos of the artist or if it's dealing with an issue. Like, one episode we did was on um, this group that are this artist who put a dead tree in the middle of the Colorado River, like right downtown, and painted it white, and it was kind of hung, so it was kind of like floating on top of the water. Um, so when you saw it from afar, it looked like it was it was floating, and that was to commemorate the like hundred and thousand. I think there was a hundred thousand trees that had died from. The drought that we had like a couple years earlier. So it was finding, you know, news footage of, of that drought or footage of trees dead, you know, like through news footage or archival footage, to stuff like that. So it was, it, it became like a process that we, we got like towards the end. Everything just sort of like fell into place. The hour pieces were a little trickier. It was like a longer story, it was a little more in depth. Um, we had more interviews, more scenes. So that one, you know, we had done one on a African ballet class and there were a lot of different ways we could have gone with that. And we ended up doing a few, a few cuts on that just to like get it right because it was making the hour piece was a little bit more intense, I guess. It was more in depth the story. So, so that took a little bit more work.
0: So how long did you work there? And then did that help you discover the featured documentary?
1: The idea for my feature doc, Building the American Dream, about undocumented construction workers in Texas, actually came to me while I was at school at UT. There was a scaffold collapse in 2009, and three workers fell to their death while building a student luxury condominium on campus. And I had always thought back then, like, someone should make a doc about this, because I ended up finding out horrible statistics about construction in texas how a worker dies every two and a half days half of the million person workforce is undocumented so being close to that accident felt really close to home and and i knew it was an important issue that needed to be discovered by mass audiences but i was also like still learning then so i was like that's a really big issue that sounds like a big movie, and it needs to have a big budget, and, like, I can't do that right now. So I was always like, oh, well, hopefully, like, someone will do it. Like, the New York Times has done this big article on the organization I filmed, the Workers Defense Project, and had uncovered all these statistics, and I was like, oh, surely, like, someone will will do a documentary now. Like, it's the national news, you know? And... Um, And then I was working at the PBS station and I don't know, like I just one day like done some research to see if anyone was like doing that story because there were still accidents that were happening with the construction workers in Austin and I just started getting fed up with those kind of headlines and I did some research and like nobody had done the documentary yet so I was like, okay, like let me, let me try to develop this and in working on the first PBS special, Fixing the Future, I had met this woman who worked with a grant writer, and so I met up with her, and she helped me write a, a treatment, you know, write all my ideas that I had, and put them into story form on paper, which was extremely helpful, and I would recommend anyone who's going into documentary to get a grant writer in it's expensive but it's worth the money sometimes if you're just starting out you can get the grant writer maybe that can write the treatment for you and then not get paid until like the grant you get awarded a grant and they can take their money from there so we started doing that I applied to the Austin Film Society Texas Film Grant was awarded you know some money it wasn't a lot it ended up paying my grant writer but it allowed me to start, like, building an audience for the film and building interest with it and also gave me, like, confidence to move forward with it. And now I had like, a treatment, you know, a proposal that I can apply for more grants for. So um, that's what I ended up doing. And being at PBS was super helpful because now I knew the PBS world. Like, I had gone through the PBS National annual conference that they have, where all the stations come together, and the national um, organization comes, and you just learn the whole system. You know who has money, where where some great opportunities are, like ITBS and Independent Lens, and and Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and National Minority Consortium, which is Latino Public Broadcasting, CAM, um, like all these all these organizations that have grants for documentary films. I learned all of that um, while working at PBS. So that was really helpful. And then I also, like, knew the people I needed to meet, you know, like their names and their faces. And so then I sort of just had the tools I needed and started applying for for more grants. And the Ford Foundation had heard of, of what I was doing and had asked for, like, a sample And I really only had, like, a, like, five-minute scene I had cut together. And I wasn't really proud of the work. And I was like, oh, my God, like, they're asking for footage. Like, I don't want to show them this. And I didn't have a lot of footage. And I was working full-time. And I was like, I don't have time to, like, cut together a whole thing. So I kind of, I was like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll send it to you, like, in a few weeks. And I never did. And then, like, they bumped me, and they came back, and they were like, hey, we're following up. And I was like, oh, my God, like, they're following up with me. I have to do something. Like, this is crazy. So I, like, bit the bullet and cut together, like, um, I think it ended up being, like, a six-minute, like, sort of teaser reel. I found archive footage, you know, like, and I cut together something real quickly. And I still, like, was not, proud of it and I was like man like I don't know if this is the right thing to do like am I blowing it for showing them footage so early and I'm glad I did because then they came around and they gave me like a micro grant for production travel and and I I feel like that was probably a test to see like you know am I am I capable of, of making this film and I guess i was to them i I ended up traveling to dc and to mexico um did some more filming was able to pay people which is like such a good feeling to pay crew members um and and started like filming and then they were like okay we're gonna give you um a production grant and it was enough for me to be like okay i'm gonna work on this full time i don't i think i can quit my job now so um I had been at KLRU for, like, three three years, maybe three and a half years, and told them, like, this is an opportunity, like, I can't pass up. I'm going to go ahead and take this and work full-time. And and it was just, like, a dream come true. And uh, once I had Ford backing, you know, now I had like, the trust of a very credible institution behind my film. But I think that helped me get other great that soon followed after that.
0: Congratulations, by the way.
1: Thank you. Thanks. they. Ford has been absolutely incredible. They have a fantastic like film arm, just filmed, and uh, again, like having confidence in me, a first time filmmaker, and and they do that for a lot of filmmakers. Like I, they really give opportunities to filmmakers of color, to stories of color, you know. And it was I'm like super grateful for for their support and encouragement
0: so then you've got the grant you've got some footage production has started and now the stage is set so what happens next 2016 happened yep 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 that's real that's the year i'm down 2016 definitely happened to me too it was it was real (laughs)
1: yeah yeah because i had been filming for like for a good, like, maybe year and a half, and I thought I was done. Like, I had the story of a family who lost their son to heat stroke on the job and filmed them fighting for a rest break ordinance in Dallas, Texas, so that other workers can be protected and have the right to take a rest because there's no federal or state law mandating construction companies to give their workers a rest break. So I was like, here's the story, you know, like this, this is it. And then, yeah. And then 2016 happened and I was like, oh man, what it's do I do story. here? <laughs> 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 yeah. Because, you know, there were ice raids, uh, a couple people in the film are undocumented. One of them has check-ins and her check-ins now became really grave. like she, I, the, the fear was real, and I could feel it when I was with her, and I filmed her at a couple check-ins, and so you'll see that in the film. And it's really tense. It's really tense. So I knew I had to, like, continue filming, but I needed the post-production process to start. So we had also gotten accepted to the Tribeca um, and a Story Lab, which is a three-day workshop for directors and their editors, and it was just like the perfect timing. Like we had all this footage, and now because of the election, like it just brought in a whole new story element that we weren't sure how much of it to put in or how to put it in, because it did feel like it was another another component, like another film almost. So going to going to that workshop was was super helpful and helped us thought more. It, it helps us think more about um, story structure. And so in the end, like, we really don't have the elections. Like, we had a whole scene that we cut of workers watching the elections, the votes come in on election night, you know, and, and we scrapped it, you know, because in the end, like, the film is about an issue that has been happening for the past, like, 20, 30 years. So one election isn't going to... Like, it, it may make matters worse, but, like, if it had been the other way around, I think the issues may have still been present. So we didn't want to distract from the, the heart of the story, which was, you know, the lack of, of safety regulations in and, and the construction industry and the exploitations that immigrants face. We, we cut the film over the next year and a half. I, I cut it with a co-editor um, based in L.A. She's actually from San Antonio, Texas. We went to school together at UT. We both had similar editing styles, and, and she spoke Spanish. I'm not fluent in Spanish, so I needed someone who was fluent. And we also had, like, a team of assistant editors, translators. We had some interns who were fantastic, just kind of all on board for... The, the post-production phase, and then we also had a consulting editor based in San Francisco, Manuel Benatti, and he helped us with the story structure also. And then, you know, he because he has been a, he's a professional editor, like he's been editing for probably like twenty years or so. You know, he brought to the table some really nice nice breathing moment to the film and and just cut things in a way that felt really
0: well, really good. I always feel like I'm chasing a tiger into the bushes and then, like, I never know what's going to happen when the story's happening. (laughs) And then you're like, but I have to chase the tiger and then you have to make a decision sometimes or, like, I feel like to either keep holding on to the tail or, like, let go because you're like, no, no, I'm good. I've seen enough of the bush and the tiger. The story is over. (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, then, yeah, I mean,
1: so. yeah. <laughs> I mean, we had like almost three years of footage, you know. Wow. So it was. I I think we calculated that it was about like five hundred hours because we also shot two cameras a lot of the time, and we also filmed other families, you know, like we followed other people. But in the end, like we only had ninety minutes to make a movie. Um, and the issues of like what's happening in the construction industry like i even i like touched the surface there's so much that is going on that we had films through different people but like we just it we it it was it was too much you know like we we had to remember that you know this is something that people don't know is happening so like let's show them like what's happening through the deeper stories of, of characters, you know, of people, mm-hmm. and so there were, like, three families that we have followed more closely than others that we decided to include and, and focus on to tell us the story of the construction industry here in Texas. I thought I was going to be done with the movie by, like, 2016, and it, <laughs> it did take, like, a year and a half to to edit. I mean, we also got another consulting editor towards the very end because I just knew I was like, the structure is off. Like, I don't know what it, like our scenes are here, but like it's, it's not being told correctly and I don't know what to do, but I know I don't like it. (laughs) And we got a consulting editor, Carlos Gutierrez who edited the RBG documentary and the plethora of other films. And she's based in New Jersey. And we were so lucky that she was available. And man, that was like the best use of money, too. Like, she came, she watched the film like three times and then totally restructured it on paper for us. And we had a Skype session for about four hours. And it was really helpful to have someone outside, too, who, you know, was just looking in because that was the thing, too, is like me. And the other editor, Sarah Garahan, like, we had been on this project for so long. Like, Sarah helped me cut some of the very first grant videos, grant samples in, like, 2014. So we needed, like, that outsider's perspective, that fresh eye, and that was was super incredible.
0: As the film is coming to a completion, because the story is ripening— to perfection (laughs) what was that process like i guess of moving from the finished film to the festivals and then audiences reaction you know ultimately in the community where the story happened
1: we were so thankful to be accepted to south by southwest and It being my home and and most of our crew is based here, my producer is based here, one of the families is based here. It was great and logistically perfect, too, because then we could have our other families from Dallas drive in and and stay here. We had a, a great first screening with, you know, over 200 people. And had a great Q&A and all the families were present and and these are families who are originally like they're activists you know like they're very involved in the movement one thing people would ask me was like how did you get like undocumented people to agree to be on screen and I was like they're on screen all the time like they're in the news they speak out about it like their, their whole mission is to send a message to other immigrants so that um, they can come out of the shadows and, and understand their rights and know it's okay to, like, speak out. And so they, they're used to, like, talking to people, but they, like, we were at the Zach Scott Theater here in, in Austin, um, which is a, a big theater where they have, like, Broadway plays. And so they all came up on stage, and I think they were all nervous. And, but they understood the power of, like, their story, and they were able to speak out to people with a microphone and people listened to them that was outside of their, you know, immigrants or construction community. And then we had, like, two other screenings after that, and they were all really full. And we got some really great reviews from Hollywood Reporter, Ramescola, Roger Beaver. I mean, it was um, was a wild ride. And I was just really thankful that, like, the film was impacting people. Um, There are a lot of tears shed during the film, screenings. And people were really emotional and just shocked that this was happening. And it was, it got people upset, you know, and and that was what I was hoping would happen. So so now, you know, we're, um, we've applied to more film festivals. We've been invited to a few. And we're also, you know, over the past couple years, we have been developing an impact campaign with a film, which is, a campaign to get the film into hands of, you know, organizations or foundations, um, community groups so that the communities that are impacted by these issues of immigration and labor can see this film and create discussions around these issues and hopefully those groups can can, you know, do something about it. So we're we're working with an impact producer, Annie Mercedes, based out of Miami, and we're sort of planning a screening tour, a community screening tour that will kick off Labor Day weekend. And so we're looking for partners and community groups to connect with, so that we can bring the film at a local grassroots level. Because um, I know. Some festivals can be sort of an elite space and a little inaccessible to some. So this is a way we can um, bring it to more audiences. And then we, we will have a PBS broadcast at some point. We uh, have support of Latino public broadcasting. So we, we don't have a date on that yet, but hopefully that will be sometime in uh, 2020.
0: So the film is coming soon to a community or film festival near you.
1: Yes, for sure. And and we have a, um, you can request a screening. Um, we've got a button on our website, buildingtheamericandream.com. So anyone who's listening and is interested in bringing it to their community, you can go ahead and fill out a form there. Um, we'll get back to you.
0: What was that like seeing? Because I mean, film festival communities are unique in a sense, and then you're always trying to you know, bring the film to make sure that you can distribute the film. And so film festivals are the good place to start uh, just for, you know, audience members listening who like might not be aware. And then after, you know, you do that, then if you're lucky, uh, much like Chelsea, you have a distribution date in place with PBS, and then you build out the rest of the distribution and the impact and the community outreach around that. And so totally respectful to all film festivals and all film festival audiences. Um, but just because I've totally been in that space where it is a little different of a space. Like, I remember one time whenever the Google Glasses were coming out, a random audience member was like, can I wear the Google Glasses in, in your movie? I'm like, I don't I don't care. I haven't even seen a pair of Google Glasses, but why are you in this film festival screening with Google Glasses? And then so, so, like, that level of audience... I kind of want to be in the room when when they see or meet um, this other side of America that in many ways is the foundation of the American dream. You know, the immigrant story is part of my mom's story. And so it it is something that um, I resonate with. And then, you know, it is a call to action and it is something to support. So I guess what was that like being in the room and then having that initial film festival audience response to you know, something they might not have even known is happening.
1: Yeah. It, it was great. I mean, just like you said, like, it, you know, like the, the film, you know, needs to reach, you know, both sides of the aisle, you know, like, yeah. and, and we, you know, there's construction everywhere. I, I, I think everybody who's listening has like walked by a construction site, might know a family member in construction. Like we all know that it's a really hard job but we never really think about the actual people who are building, you know, our economy in in our cities. So the the festival audience was a great audience to be able to um, share this film with. And it was, it was really great seeing people's reactions. Our last screening at South by Southwest was at the Austin Film Society cinema and the executive director of AFS was there and the artist director and and, and they were really moved by the film, as well as other uh, audience members, and and that was really great to see. We got a standing ovation, and I knew then, like, okay, this movie, <laughs> this movie is good, you know, because like yeah. throughout the whole process of making the film, you, there's so many like confidence issues you deal with and insecurity, and it, I don't know if I have a film, I don't know if it's good, and so the the stellar reactions we got from. The film festival audience made me realize, okay, this movie is good, and I think it will impact audiences. So it was, um, it was really a re- really uh, rewarding experience.
0: I think this is a really good high note to go out on, just because I think it's a really wonderful, we're kind of up to date on the journey. The next time anyone sees a construction site, is there any facts that we can think about or like anything that people can just you know, no is really happening so that they won't be caught in the illusion of, uh, Western expansion.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I know there's like a lot of anti-immigrant rhetoric going around and, mainstream media and, um, and social media, and I think what we should understand as a society is that, you know, immigrants built this country, and they continue to build this country, and there are probably a few immigrants on that construction site that you pass, so I think they deserve to be treated with dignity and respect, just like anybody else. And, and we also, like, I feel like we should appreciate construction workers. I mean, it's a really hard job. It's very labor intensive. It's, you know, in Denver, I'm sure they're working out in very cold um, conditions or in the snow. You know, like, work, work yep. doesn't stop. Yep. I can only imagine, like, hammering and working inside a house that has no heat you know, like putting up the walls and the molding, you know, like and while you're wearing a parka, <laughs> you know, I yeah. mean, extreme conditions. And so I think we just, we need to understand that and, uh, and appreciate their hard work, but also know that for workers, you know, they, there are rights that they have, regardless of status, whether you're undocumented or you're a citizen, like you have the right to get paid as a worker. So no worker should be robbed of their wages or be paid at like slavery wages and and you know, the rules are, are kind of vary from, from state to state and I'm actually not sure how Colorado lands in, in the country right now as far as wage conditions and safety conditions, but I think it's definitely something to, to think about. And hopefully we can come and share the film with Colorado audiences soon so that people can be impacted by the story.
0: Let's hope we get to see it soon. And also, yeah, just everybody will know about it. So maybe when the film's out, we can kind of revisit it and then maybe do another episode and then talk about, you know, some future projects or just some future ideas, you know. So maybe there's a way to keep oh. keep supporting the film because I'm definitely trying to watch it. And so I'm waiting. And so I want to like uh, become a fan and then I want to interact with all of the pages and then I just want to kind of do it as organically as possible, so I feel like the algorithm you know isn't maneuvering my uh, choices you
1: know yeah, <laughs> yeah, but I think this is a good one
0: i I really think this was you know I'm really excited to see this film, so I really thank you for making it and you know maybe if you want to close it out um um feel free to do um I guess a closing statement of maybe you know anything you want people to know and how they should watch out for the film and then what ways to kind of find you, I guess.
1: One thing I want to let people know is that there are some really great fellowships out there for first and second time filmmakers. If you're a filmmaker of color, there's firelight media doc lab, which which is an 18 month mentorship program with three retreats. It's, totally helped me through my production and early post-production process. You get a directing mentor, you get an editing mentor, and they're like an incredibly uh, supportive group of, of people, and you also get to meet other filmmakers. Living in Austin, where sometimes I can feel a little isolated from people, being able to go to a few retreats and be with a cohort made me realize I wasn't alone, and that the same issues I was dealing with in the filmmaking process, other people um, deal with it too. So they are accepting applications right now. I think through June seventeenth. I think that's the deadline. And then there's also Baymac, the Bay Area Video Coalition National Media Maker Fellowship, which I was a part of. That's a twelve month mentorship. It was incredibly helpful during my post production process, where I was a lot. I was able to show cut. And a lot of what The Cut is now was, like, based on feedback I got from my cohort then. Um, and that's based in San Francisco. You also go on, like, five retreats. Three are in San Francisco. It's just, like, these fellowships are just so great to have if you're making your first film. Because it can be a really daunting process, especially if you're spending years, you know, making a film. But it also is, like, really professional environment. Really great networking. They provide you with a lot of tools um, that you need for things. And it just really helped me in the process of making my film. So I highly recommend people to look them up. I'm sure there's other fellowships out there too. So maybe you can Google other ones, but definitely apply for those. And, and sometimes they come with grants. I know the day one does and the Firelight. you have the opportunity to apply for a grant. But yeah, if, if you want to follow the film, you have a webpage. BuildingTheAmericanDream.com. we're also on facebook facebook.com slash building American Dream. and we're on instagram and that's our handle, the title of the film and then we're also on twitter at building Film.
0: thank you for your time chelsea hernandez, I really appreciate really just the time you spent to tell this story and I think it's really important for audiences to see this story when and where they can Thank you so much. Thanks
1: so much, Josh. It was great talking to
0: you. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Filmmaker. We hope that you enjoyed these stories from the front lines of trying to create a documentary feature film. We hope you enjoyed all of Chelsea's lessons from making her first feature film, the documentary Building the American Dream. And to help you discover Chelsea Hernandez's work and all of her films, we've listed them all with links in the show description. And our hope is that you discover her films and many other filmmakers, and you discover what it really means to be an American filmmaker. The music used in this episode comes from my first feature film, Postales. It was written by Michael J. Deller of the Budos Band. Thank you, Mike, for your wonderful talent and the music for this episode.